You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. This is Greg Wilson. I'm here with Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how's it going? It's going great. Um, you know, one week post-conference, um, and it's it's been it's been a whirlwind, to say the least. So a lot, decent amount to talk about today. Yeah, lots to catch up from your time out in San Diego. I was back here in PA working while you guys were enjoying the sunshine, but that's okay. You guys took lots of notes, and <laughs> we've got some sound bites at the end of the podcast episode today from some staff that were out there. So... Uh, stay tuned for that. Let's let's hop into um, maybe some more pertinent operational updates in the 340B space. Last week, more manufacturers revising policies around uh, contract pharmacy restrictions. Oh my gosh! Right, um, and you know it's it's something we've talked about, right? That with um, we had a couple of manufacturers initially uh, with J and J and Abby and Am- Amgen, and of course during the conference we started hearing about a, a couple additional ones, and so. Yeah, not further restrictions. Um, and very interesting, right? Um, uh, GSK, uh, Novartis recently as well. Um, Pfizer, a little bit with the health system exception uh, pullback. Yeah. So quite a bit going on um, that uh, are, it, and it's getting complicated to keep track of them. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, Greg, Greg, you maintain a nice little table for us internally that we provide to our clients of the 21 manufacturers. And that table includes kind of when the restrictions started, um, if they allow for a single uh, contract pharmacy exception or single contract pharmacy, if you don't have in-house retail, um, we also kind of highlighted health system owned exceptions because that's some more and more ha- don't have health system owned exceptions now, especially some of those newer uh, newer restrictions that just came out. What's interesting is the num- number of these 21 now that will not provide access back to all of your contract pharmacies if you send data. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, of course, is just we, we keep track of um, how many grantees are affected because all every manufacturer is a little different. And it is starting to get very difficult to remember which one is which and, and the nuances. Of what? Uh, how, how do you keep it straight? Oh, I, I don't. I, this is really Riley's slides. I know we've had Riley on here and, you know, he and I kind of work together to keep our hot topics slide decks. So if we've audited you in the past, um, you know, we'd like to kind of share news and noteworthy stuff going into 340B space at the beginning of our audits. But, you know, this this slide really is, is owned by Riley. And it, I feel like you're right. It It's changing. As soon as we update it, it's outdated already. And it's a lot to keep track of. The more recent policy changes from folks like J&J and Amgen, AbbVie, GSK, Novartis, they're, they're stacking these different types of restrictions. So it's not just one kind of comprehensive restriction. It's, you know, they're, they're piecemealing various restrictions that have been in place over the last couple of years and stacking them together. So you've got manufacturers, and I think primarily all of them at this point are li- allowing you to designate at least a single contract pharmacy if you don't have in-house. That, that That's right, Rob. We, we got, there isn't a single manufacturer that has uh, eliminated that, right? That is, that's true, but, and this is a big but, three of them, right, we know it's, and it's Amgen, AbbVie, and Johnson & Johnson, um, yeah. No specific order there. I guess I should start with Abby, so it can be alphabetical. But um, their restrictions now say um, 
and, and I can remember which one. I, I think you have to upload data for the single yeah. contract. So, so, so you have to upload contract pharmacy yeah. data. For, so for these newer ones, it's not just contract pharmacy data, but you've got to also upload your in-house retail pharmacy data. So they're saying, look, if you want contract pharmacy pricing, we need to see entity-owned retail data as well, which is, I think, a big stretch. And a lot of people really don't feel that that's you know, within the scope of what they should be asking for when they're trying to uh, restrict 340B pricing on the contract pharmacy side. So to remind right. So what that means is if you have, so, and this is actually a little different. I mean, it's, it's almost like an olive branch, but it's not um, right. right. It's they're, they're saying before, if you had an in-house retail pharmacy, you couldn't have, you couldn't elect a single contract pharmacy. You could send data from many manufacturers and get access back, but they didn't have this. So now they're saying, well, even if you have an in-house retail you can elect a single contract pharmacy, but to your point, you have to send data on both the in-house retail pharmacy and contract pharmacy. And we're like, whoa, wait a second. And you can't get all of your contract pharmacies back. Basically, you're allowed to add one. And in either case, you have to send data. It's just if you have an in-house retail, you have to send your in-house retail data too. So if you don't have an in-house retail pharmacy, works out pretty good. You can still select one. You just have to plan on sending data for those that single contract pharmacy. Um, the yeah. other part in that, which I really don't like for these three manufacturers, is the 40-mile rule. Love to talk about that more. These so what's interesting is Novartis got rid of their forty mile rule, right? They're just allowing for a single contract pharmacy, um, but these three manufacturers, Amgen, Abbey, and JJ, now have this forty mile rule, which means that that single contract pharmacy you pick has to be within forty miles. Now, if you happen to live in a rural area and you don't have a pharmacy within forty miles, they will work with you to identify the nearest one. You know, maybe it's fifty miles or sixty miles. Hopefully there's one closer than that. That's really hard for patient care. But if you don't, they will work with you. But if you do have one within 40 miles, you're going to have to pick one. Yep. And so the one area that I get, I struggle with, especially with these three manufacturers, because they do have some of that specialty drugs that have limited distribution or, um, you know, RAMS type programs. So they have to go through a specialty pharmacy where you're getting some farm, extra pharmacotherapy support. A lot of those specialty pharmacies aren't within 40 miles. So what I, where I struggle is how do we get access to some of these drugs if they're not available at the, the pharmacy within 40 miles? Yeah. I mean, a lot of that's out, you know, the use of those specialty pharmacies that are outside that 40 mile radius. I think it, it, it often isn't done at the preference of the covered entity. It's like you said, it's a, you know, an access issue, you know, limited distribution or a REMS program where there's a specific pharmacy that's limited in being able to dispense the drug or payer determinations, you know, your payer mix, you know, patients may have specific specialty pharmacies that they need to use based on insurance requirements. And those pharmacies may not be in your region. So you're really boxing out a lot of uh, specialty pharmacy access by restricting your contract pharmacy radius to be within 40 miles of your CE. Yeah, that one that one's a tough one, I think. Um, but let's let's go through because I think for the here's what we should probably say. If especially um, if you're already work, if you work with us, let Greg or I know. We can get you a copy of the table. I think it's really helpful. But if I can share, I'd love to share some of these numbers because as we start looking at this, it's good to know uh, if you're looking at this um, kind of contract pharmacy. If you're in there, kind of what do the numbers look like? So the updated numbers um, show that we. We te technically have 14 of the 21 manufacturers do allow for health system exceptions. So for our health systems out there that might have a specialty pharmacy that's just entity owned or system owned, or if you have pharmacies that are system owned that are contract pharmacies, but they're that you know health system owned exception, 14 of the 21 do allow for that. But I will say Pfizer did have an update, I think later this April, that they are getting rid of the, um, the health system owned exception. So we'll be down to 13 of the 21 will have that. So, but just, just a reminder for everyone that that is helpful. 
Um, those new, um, we should talk about Amgen, AbbVie, and J&J. They actually no longer allow for a health system owned exception. They just consider it a contract pharmacy. So again, if you want to include that contract pharmacy, you do have to send data. So that's the one, one kind of big change with those three. Um, kind of thoughts on that health system exception, um, whether those should be included or not included and, and why two thirds feel, yeah, we should, and the other third are kind of just ignoring it. Yeah, I, I don't know the strategy for why we're seeing variants amongst the manufacturers, but, you know, I think, you know, it's it's certainly confusing for for health system or covered entities that are working and operating under a, you know, umbrella uh, tax ID. So if there's common ownership across, you know, your hospitals and your retail pharmacies, you know, I, I can understand why covered entities would be really frustrated if, you know, for strategic purposes or for business related purposes, your retail pharmacies were reorganized under just a different subunit of your organization. And now they're essentially eliminated from participating in contract pharmacy activity based on these, you know, kind of fluid policies that the manufacturers are putting out. Yeah, it's I, I think that's a tough one, um, especially, you know, a lot, you know, my old organization did it because. Um, we just want to align all of our retail pharmacies under one business unit just just for more efficiencies and and of course that would be that'd be tough now that that you would have lost some access to some of the key manufacturers yeah. um the other big number that that I wanted to share are how many so out of the 21 how many left still allow for you to add all of your contract pharmacies back if you send data and i thought we were still over half and i counted and and kind of a sad number nine nine of the 21 less than half i mean 10 would still be less than half but nine of the 21 um still allow for it so there is still that opportunity now there is a chance that you know some of these nine could go the same route as these other manufacturers we'll keep our fingers crossed that they don't and that they continue to partner to collect the data on all those contract pharmacies and all pricing but um nine of 21 did did you get a chance to look at that ahead of time and, and see that the numbers drop that significantly? Yeah, I mean, you can see a big shift in, you know, the number of manufacturers that are, uh, you know, not allowing uh, you to upload your data to get all of your, your 340B pricing. But another shift that we're seeing too, and this is primarily with GSK's letter, is now, you know, uh, impacting grantees, not allowing grantees to um, be carved out of the the restrictions. I wonder if that's a shift that we're going to see in the future as well. Yeah, that, that's my last number. You know, it's something I've been tracking is the grantee side and, and how many are affected. So same number. So easy to remember for everyone. If you're a grantee, nine of the 21 manufacturers currently have restrictions um, in your contract pharmacy as well. So that number is increasing. And only seven of those nine, um, go check my numbers here. I'm just looking at our table. Seven of those nine um, will allow you to get your access back if you send data through the ESP platform. So not bad, seven of the nine. The other two, and I'll just say it, is AstraZeneca and GSK, they are restricting and they're not providing full access back. Um, if you don't have an in-house retail, you can elect one contract pharmacy, but that's it. So pretty much AstraZeneca and GSK um, for, is for grantees and, and for and hospitals, uh, no access back for full data sent. Um, so that, you know, if that's a significant, if, if you look at those two manufacturers, definitely make sure budget-wise you're looking at that and realizing you're not going to see a lot of value in your contract pharmacy space uh, moving forward un unless something big changes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, we've, we're, we've talked about ASAP 340B and, and the merits of some of the proposals and the fact that there's some alignment between the the grantee community and, and pharmaceutical manufacturers, but GSK is kind of stepping outside of that here. So, so even amongst 
the 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 manufacturer industry there isn't really consistent support of grantee covered entities as is kind of outlined in those policy proposals that uh that 340b asap 340b is put together so i, I thought that was an interesting development yeah I, and and what's interesting is you know i think um from NAC at the conference uh, at least from the grantee i talked to one of the comments there, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about this later, um, you know, we, we didn't have access to that meeting because it was close to CHC's own, but, you know, we have a lot of CHC clients, so they share. One of the things they talked about was that so far that that relationship has been successful because we hadn't seen any manufacturers really impact um, CHC since that collaboration started. And then, of course, GSK announces, I was like, well, they can't say that anymore. Yeah. Um, so interesting that GSK kind of didn't follow suit with that that uh, partnership and and not only came out swinging with by saying, hey, this impacts grantees, but also you can't even add them back with ESP. So, uh, it, you know, so maybe that partnership isn't as strong with all the manufacturers as we thought. Well, I mean, this is a topic I'm certain we're going to have to revisit again. It seems like every week there's changes, there's different proposals, there's new manufacturers involved. So, you know, we'll certainly uh, keep this as a, as a topic that we address on the podcast. And again, we've got a lot of folks that are kind of working at Spendman, supporting clients, kind of navigating these these restrictions and these challenges. So certainly reach out to us if you're if you're struggling to to make sense of, of what you might need to do as far as kind of maximizing your your contract pharmacy program. Yeah, we're still providing ESP program support. We we still have other things we're looking at just to optimize your 340B program. So if you're in a situation where Things are tight. Things are going to get tighter, and you're just looking for some some compliant opportunities. Uh, like let's, let's make sure everyone knows that we we focus on compliance first. Um, reach out. More than happy to talk shop and, and see see if we have any um, suggestions for you. It's getting tough, and and I, I feel for our our covered entity clients that are you know where they're already struggling financially, and and this isn't going to help. All right, moving on. Last week in Washington, House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, had some hearings around healthcare and transparency in the healthcare space and 340B was was included in the discussions. Any comments or thoughts listening back to the recordings from the hearings? Yeah, it's tough. I was in the middle of coalition and I'm trying to keep up what's going on at the hearings and you just get these little blurbs or these little you know LinkedIn or a tweet post and you're like, oh my gosh, um, how do we do both at the same time? But uh, yeah, I had an opportunity once I got back from coalition to kind of read up on what I could from any of the news outlets. Definitely um, appreciate um, 340B report and 340B health for sending out some information and then just reading things in, you know, other, other news outlets. So um, one thing's interesting. So first is just really the um, kind of the, the consensus. If you read a lot of the updates, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of good information coming um, or uh, comments coming out of uh, the vice chair for the energy and commerce subcommittee on health. That's a representative, uh, Larry Bouchon out of Indiana, where, you know, he talks about the fact that transparency is absolutely needed. Now I, I, I not to say he's he's an opponent um, of the 340 program. I think he's for reform, um, that he feels the program does need uh, some reform. Um, but I do think he does realize the value of the program. He's just talking about that, you know, that transparency is here and, and this is something we need to do. We need to, everyone needs to better understand what hospitals, you know, how much savings hospitals have and, and what they're doing with those savings, right? And and this is something we've been talking about. We know that it was coming. We, we I think this is something that hospitals probably need to gear up for that as we get into um, some type of legislation based on NACs and farms recommendations, that this is one that's going to be in there and likely one that's going to make it. If, if a bill makes it, that'll likely stay. That'll be one of the, the key things that probably gets it across the finish line. 
And so kind of reading between the lines. Um, oh, another important point I should mention, um, you know, we've been trying to figure out, well, when are we going to see legislation around pharma and NAC's um, recommendations? And Representative Bouchon did say he's working on something. He didn't give a timeline. He didn't say what would be in it. But he did say, um, in, as he was uh, having discussions um, with um, th during his interview process, it kept coming up that, hey, you know, HHS needs uh, rulemaking authority. And so throughout that process, he just kept, you know, he, he let Secretary Becerra know that um, he's working on it. He's working on something. Um, in fact, his, his quote was, um, I was trying to find his quote so we could read it, but basically he's he's working on that. Oh, his quote is, yeah, well, I'm working on that. Um, and that's partly to give possibly HRSA rulemaking authority and also to deal with transparency. So, um, and I think we heard from our CHCs that NAC also said that um, they're working with legislators and they do have a couple of legislators they're working with they didn't say house or senate and that they do anticipate that they're going to have a bill come out here in the next couple months and so yeah. um we don't know if that's uh representative bouchon's bill but it putting those two together it looks like it could be and so i'm anticipating seeing that bill and this is where i just would love to tell everybody this is the time this is an existential time if you're a dish hospital you need to reach out to your congress um uh people in your community so it's your senators and your representatives to help share not only why the 340B program is important, but give them talking points on some of these recommendations on which ones are going to be very hurtful or harmful to you as an organization and, and therefore patient care. Um, and I think the focus needs to be on patient care because this is going to be a big negotiation, right? There's This bill is going to come out and if it, if it has everything that was recommended, it's going to be a very difficult bill for dishes, dish hospitals to to deal with because it's going to cause a significant drop in 340B savings, possibly a loss of 340B hospitals um, if they change the requirement for qualification. You know, if you, they get rid of components of the program, uh, such as referral, um, uh, telehealth visits, right? All these things that we talked about last time in, in, in the last podcast, it's going to harm dish hospitals. And I think this is the time to talk to Congress because it's going to be a negotiation where some things are going to stay in, some things are going to go out. And think about what else can we add? What else do we need to add um, to that bill to help hospitals out? So I, I've been talking for a while here, Greg. What are your thoughts on bills and, and things that um, covered entities should be doing right now? You got to imagine that Bouchon is involved in in some type of uh, legislative proposal draft. He's I think he was one of the co-sponsors of a potential bill back know, a couple of years ago, the Pause 340B Act that was going to suspend 340B eligibility uh, criteria um, that ended up getting pulled off the table during a change of Congress. But yeah, I, I think transparency is going to be a huge issue. Everybody is asking for transparency on both sides of the aisle. You know, we've heard uh, Bernie Sanders through the health committee talk about the need for more transparency for these large hospitals and, you know, ensuring that they're adhering to their, you know, requirements as nonprofits. You know, I, I, and you've said it before, I think transparency is the olive branch that covered entities can extend. Because if you're working under the spirit of the program, you know, your community benefit is likely exceeding what you save in 340B program. You just need to put some of that um, pen, you got to put pen to paper and demonstrate that through your 340B impact statement and kind of a, a list of things that are serviced or provided by 340B savings. So, you know, I, I agree, you know, time now really is for kind of advocacy, but also getting your ducks in a row in terms of establishing that 340B impact profile and being prepared to demonstrate how much you save from the program and what you do from the program. We talked about the letters that OPA sent out at the beginning of March. You know, HRSA is, HRSA, HRSA is asking for this. They're asking covered entities to report back to them, you know, 
how do you track your savings and what do you do with your 340B savings? So it's going to come up in discussions in Congress and HERS is also looking into it on their end as well. So, you know, it's an unavoidable topic. And I think covered entities just really need to kind of accept that this is a, a good starting point for us offering up, you know, what we think is is reasonable um, reform on our end. And, you know, transparency is going to be hopefully bi-directional. We could gain some transparency from manufacturers as well on the 340B side. Yeah, I, I forgot. I mean, I, I remember reading about it, but thanks for saying that. I forgot that Representative Bouchon in his 340B Pause Act, um, he did want to halt um, disproportionate share enrollment, as including their child sites for a two-year period. He was asking for a moratorium. Yeah. Of course, that bill never passed and never got out of Congress. But so, yeah, that's, I mean, definitely, you know, again, with, with him being in his position and uh, writing these bills, I I'd anticipate something similar. His other part to that bill did require was a little bit of transparency, talking about insurance status and gross reimbursement and, and all this information that they wanted to collect. So I think he's already on that transparency path. And I think we got to anticipate that's going to continue to occur. So it's a good call out there. Yeah. All right. Uh, regulatory updates. Um, just This is a, a small update, but I think this is significant. This is actually a good development for, for covered entities, at least based on the HRSA audits that we've supported in the past. Uh, OPACE has um, changed. There's been some revisions made to the Office of Pharmacy Affairs Information System, so where you register all of your 340B covered entity uh, locations and contract pharmacies. Um, th these proposed changes were first published in the Federal Register last fall. They went out for comments. And this month, we've seen um, OPA integrate some of these changes in OPACE. The first is removal of the government officials. So when you're registering or recertifying a a covered entity, there's no longer a requirement to keystroke into OPACE the name of a government official um, that historically would have attested to you having a, a contract um, to provide care to underserved patients. That part of the qualification info tab has uh, been removed. So no longer do you need to have a, uh, a, a sitting member of your government kind of referenced on the OPA database. Another removal is um, the requirement for Ryan White grantees to put their uh, notice of funding opportunity number, the NOFO number, into uh, their 340B uh, registration. So that's part of the HRSA grant process already. Uh, HRSA recognizes it as a, a redundant piece of information, and it's not uh, something that's required moving forward in OPACE for 340B registration. And the last change, and I think this is really significant because we've seen HRSA audit findings um, because of the inability to do change requests on information on the qualification info tab. HRSA has now added the option to make edits to your qualification info um, section. So if you've got during recertification, you made a keystroke error and you typed in the wrong Medicare cost report filing date, or you forgot to update the disproportionate share percentage from the previous year's cost report, um, things like hospital control type and classification, your contract start date, all of those data elements in the qualification info tab. Before, if you got them wrong during recertification, there was nothing that you could do to fix them until the next year's recertification. And if you were audited by HRSA um, in that time span, you could get a OPA database finding that requires a corrective action plan. Now you can make change requests to update all of that information um, in real time. So, you know, really important, uh, you know, compliance 
part of the 340B program is making sure you've got all your accurate information listed on OPACE. Half of the audit findings uh, that we've seen from HRSA in the last couple of years have been around OPA database inaccuracies. This gives you the ability to be more flexible and make changes as you see uh, the need for, for correction on OPACE. Does that make sense, Rob? It does. Uh, glad to actually see this one, right? This is uh, like to your point, the the Medicare cost report information seems to be one that HRSA finds frequently. And it's one of those, uh, we say, you know, more um, administrative findings. I guess the less polite word I use is ticky tack findings, but right. um, they are findings and for having an inaccurate OPACE database. And this will help us um, give us the ability and cover entities' ability to fix these things as we identify them. And so, really happy about those changes and appreciate HRSA doing that. Good. Another item in the news, um, not specifically, not directly related to 340B, but I think it's going to have kind of more, more of a long-term impact on probably our disproportionate share hospitals or dish hospitals. Um, Medicaid disenrollments restarting uh, beginning this month. So go back to 2020, COVID-19 relief package ensured that uh, Medicaid recipients had continuous coverage throughout the public health emergency. So uh, states were prohibited from uh, disenrolling any Medicaid beneficiaries in the setting of a public health emergency. Uh, when uh, Congress passed uh, their budget this past December, so through the Omnibus Appropriations Bill, um, the, uh, the Medicaid disenrollment um, protections are being phased out starting in April of 2023. So states are going to start disenrolling Medicaid patients who no longer uh, qualify. Um, we'll start happening this month. I think the first handful of states include Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, New Hampshire, and South Dakota. And then I think um, up to 29 additional states will um, likely trim their Medicaid recipient numbers between now and October. And you know, a couple of different articles that I've read project you're looking at maybe 15 million Medicaid recipients that are going to be terminated from Medicare coverage in the next couple of months. That's going to have impact on disproportionate share percentage, right, Rob? Yeah, that's that's my fear, right? With everything going on with post-COVID and during COVID, where we still have some of the impact from that, um, you know, employment changes and everything else, where dish percentages have been for some hospitals, it's been getting, it's been trending closer to the line. And I agree, that's my concern is that um, with it, these 15 million potential, right, based on that report, um, less Medicaid recipients, that's going to start impacting dish percentages for hospitals subject to um, 8% or 11.75% dish minimum requirements, um, which means we might lose more hospitals from the program, um, which means we that decreases these hospitals' ability to continue to provide the charity care at the levels they have been or expanding services to patients in need and so it's just going to continue to impact our patient populations, um, not to mention not having insurance is going to affect those patients financially. So uh, a little scary to see how this plays out. But, um, you know, it's 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 the way I guess the way we work um, here in the U.S. And I guess we have to wait and see how that how that plays out. But I will say there are some things that we could try and look at doing, you know, going back to having conversations with legislators, with the Senate or House of Representatives, you know, in 20 for 20, up until through the end of 2022, we had an exemption or exception to your dish percentage not qualifying or dropping below the minimum requirement through COVID. Um, we know that ended at the end of, if you're for cost reports, it ended at the end of 2022. But, you know, that could be something that could be discussed. You know, we're still seeing impact from that. We're going to see decrease enrollment. Um, yeah. Is this an opportunity to talk about possibly doing 2023 as well, or at least through half of 2020? 
um, three to, to coincide with the, the PHE expiration date here in Q2, maybe it goes through Q2 um, cost report. So that, you know, that does help some of our academics or people associated with um, health systems that run their fiscal year through June, um, if we could get it extended. But um, just something to think about as, as we do advocacy, that could be something that we could try and add to any bills to help protect those hospitals still feeling the impact from COVID and, and that patient mix of insurance. Excellent. All right. Well, let's let's talk about coalition now. You know, I think it was so Cam, our, our auditor out in Hawaii, sent me a, a note when he got back from coalition. He says maybe one of the most passionate 340B meetings he's ever attended. Lots, lots of fireworks, lots of uh, lots of activity at the uh, at the San Diego conference. Tell me what you saw, Rob. Yeah, no, and we've got some recordings that I think we'll play. I guess we'll review them. It, the, the, uh, hopefully the quality is okay. We recorded them down in our booth section with some of our staff and um, some of those. But um, I mean, the, the biggest thing that we heard from the conference, to be honest, was really, um, and again, we weren't able to attend because it was, you know, I, I'm not sure if people are aware, but as um, we're considered vendors and we're not allowed to attend all sessions. So, you know, if it's specific to hospitals or specific to grantees or a specific type of grantee, they really only allow people with that number on their badge that correlates with that covered entity type to enter those meetings. And they do that so that covered entities can feel free to speak openly about things. And And I don't think they're necessarily intended to exclude um, us as vendors because we really represent covered entities and we work with covered entities. In many cases, we're the covered entities uh, frontline support as well. And and um, and we work with them on a ongoing basis. So, but, you know, there could be other covered or vendor types that don't work as closely with covered entities that could take that information and, you know, and maybe share that with um, groups that maybe they didn't want it shared with. So we, we get the reason for that. But at the same time, you know, again, so we heard from some of our clients, some of the things going on. Uh, one of the biggest things that we heard, and, and uh, hopefully we get a chance to um, kind of learn a little bit more from NAC about that, but um, in NAC's presentation, apparently they announced that they're no longer attending 340B coalition meeting moving forward. And so we're trying to figure out what that means. And and so I know one thing we looked at, one thing they said was they'll be attending the grantee meetings in conjunction with Ryan White. Um, and so we know there's an RWC conference coming up here at the end of May or beginning of May. Um, we were already planning on sending a couple of our CHC or grantee auditors, um, Megan and Jasmine. So they are offering a little tabletop booth thing. So we thought is okay if that's that's where NAC's going to be, and many of the CECs will follow suit. We want to we want to make sure we're there for our clients and our covered entities. So we're going to do a I think they have a little tabletop thing we can do, and we're going to we're trying to make that happen. A little short notice, so we got to make sure we can. But we'll be there. So definitely for those of you that are attending the CHC conference, I believe it's in New Orleans, um, at the beginning of May. Stop by and talk to Megan and Jasmine. I think we're trying to get Eric Howard, our RVP Pharmacy Services, as well there. Um, he can help collect information that way if you if you're not currently working with us and, and you want to have us or understand what how we can help your covered entity Eric will be there to collect your information be able to follow up after the conference so um, excited that we can send some people to that but at the same time concerned that we're splitting up the band if you will right yeah. it feels like um, the covered entities combined are very strong from a legislative perspective but by splitting them up this way and and maybe not being on the same page how does that impact 340B moving forward um, if, if we don't have that strong connection like we've had in the past? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, this is really kind of unprecedented. There has always been solidarity across the 340B community whenever there's been challenges or concerns that, hey, we need to scale back the 340B program. And, and now we're, we're really kind of faced with kind of a fracture in the community. And I think that started with, you know, some of the, the legislative or policy proposals that are out there that maybe some of our 
hospital constituents kind of took exception to. And you can understand why the CHC community says, hey, look, we're different. We're, we're, we're already operating under different requirements as uh, federal grantees. But I mean, I think it does really, you know, increase the complexity and, and add challenges to the overall effort to speak to protecting the 340B program when there's clearly some division amongst the, the 340B providers. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I guess I, I'm trying to understand the perspective, right? And we should point out to everybody, we, we're, we're not picking sides here. <clears throat> we're just trying to look at the program as a whole. Um, we, we try, we work with a lot of um, community health centers. So we actually really appreciate what NAC does, but at the same time, we also work with a lot of hospitals and some of the recommendations that came from the NAC Pharma Alliance or coalition, whatever you want to call it, do affect dish hospitals. And, and we have some significant concerns that some of these dish hospitals, those 340 savings are critical for them keeping their doors open. hope I don't sound like a broken record, but most health systems aren't profitable right now. They're, yeah. I mean, they're not for profit, so they're not supposed to be profitable, but they're literally running in the red. They're, they're burning through cash flow and it, that's unsustainable. Um, and, and these further restrictions would make that, that runway before they became unsustainable where they would close it shortens that runway. And what does healthcare look like in America if we start losing hospitals because they can't afford to stay open? Because over time, they've added more and more services to care for pay, uh, you know, pay populations in their area and, and providing a lot of charity care. And if they can't afford that anymore because of the financial situation that most of them find themselves in, very scary from my perspective. And, and so that's where I have concerns. So like I said, I understand where NAC's coming from, where they feel like they're gonna have a bigger voice if if they kind of get out of the, the hospital shadow. And that's just me kind of trying to understand and read between the lines of what's occurring. Um, but at the same time, I, I am worried what happens to hospitals in this case. Um, there's such a big foundation, a safety net for, uh, for care for patients across the country. And to be fair, NAC has done their best to, to exclude the sole communities and the critical access hospitals in rural areas. So it, it impact more kind of uh, city type or larger hospitals in urban areas more than it will the rural hospitals. And so definitely appreciate that um, the sole communities and critical access were kind of carved out to a certain degree with the grantees, because um, that would have been even scarier um, if they were lumped into some of this. And one, one question or, or comment that came back from staff who attended the opening remarks section, I think we had session, I think we, we had talked about maybe this is, is worthy of some clarification with, with Apexis was kind of a, a statement around the number of HRSA audits anticipated for 2023. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so uh, caveat, we don't have clarification yet. In fact, I need to ask. So, so if, if anyone from Apexis listens to our podcast, um, I'll be sending out a request, but you know, our OPA director, uh, Commander Eglum, he, he made a statement and half our team was on one side, half our team was on the other. So in fact, I'd love feedback from anyone listening. You know, what, if you were at the conference and you heard what he said, um, what he said was, if, and this is not a perfect quote, cause I didn't record it or take, take specific notes on, on it at the time. But he's, you know, he confirmed that in 2022, HRSA uh, had conducted 200, I don't know if it was exactly 200, but basically he said 200 um, uh, hospital audits. And I would say something around 15 um, man manufacturer audits. So, so that's good to know they're still doing both. But when he said that they did 200 audits, annual audits in 2022, he then said, and we're doing an additional 200 audits in 2023 or something like that, like the word additional or, or something similar to that. And so we got back and I just took that as, okay, they did 200 in 2022. They're going to do an additional 200 in 2023. I got back and I, and some people were talking, I heard them saying, and they said, well, okay, but there's a second meeting that they did 200 in 2022. And in 2023, they would like to do an additional 200 on top of the 200 they planned. So that'd be 400. I was like, there's no way 400 would be such a big jump. I mean, yeah. they used to do 300 to be fair. 
So I guess not huge jump, but I would think they'd want to go back to 300 or 250 or something smaller than just doubling in 2023. So I, I, I'm on the, the team of, or on the side of, I think he just meant 200, just like 2022, we're doing another 200 or just 200 in 2023. Um, so Greg, yeah. I wish you were there to hear it. Like, Cause I'd love <laughs> yeah, to get your team. No, I know maybe I'm not always the best at interpreting things. I, I probably would have also agreed with your interpretation that said, oh, it's just going to be you know, business as usual, another 200 or so hospital or covered entity audits uh, this year. I mean, there's there we haven't seen any other signals that HRSA is auditing at a greater frequency than last year. I mean, we, we, we haven't seen an uptick in the number of clients that we support that have gotten HRSA audit notices. There's been no, you know, communication on the OPA website that they're auditing with a greater frequency. Um, but yeah, I think we can certainly reach out to somebody at Apexis and see if there's there's any clarification that can be provided around. What yeah, the I'll do that. I'll reach out. Um, hopefully for our next podcast, I'll be able to clarify that if I can get that clarification. If anyone has that clarification for us, please let us know. Um, we're more than happy to share it with everybody on the podcast on our next episode. But uh, yeah, I just interesting highlight. Love to get uh, people's understanding of what you heard if you attended um, Commander Edwin's um, presentation there. So did you meet with clients or prospective clients the whole time? Did you get to go to any sessions? Yeah, I, I did make uh, quite a few sessions that I'm allowed to go to. I didn't have any special numbers on my badge to let me do anything. But so I think vendors are 11. So so I went to the ones that I could. Um, I, I, I thought it was a good conference in general. I thought good content. But really, I think it was just meeting with our clients, our current clients, and catching up with them, the ones I don't get to talk to regularly. That was, that was hugely beneficial. You know, and, and potential clients that were working on possibly getting a contract. So got a lot of work done there. Um, was able to speak to a lot of the vendors where, you know, we're just trying to make sure we keep relationship or if, if we have any clients that had issues trying to get a report or or some kind of um, EDI feed or something done. So I had some of that on my to-do list. So it was really, it, really a good conference. Um, you know, just, uh, yeah, that, just some highlights there. Um, one thing that I think we have a recording of some, you know, for the opening session there's an interesting keynote um, talking about nearables, right? Instead of wearables, but nearables now that where devices can just be near you and it can collect information. Um, there was an interesting, um, I guess, uh, comment after or towards the end of that presentation, um, which which it felt a little odd, like, wow, did that really just happen? Um, but I won't spoil any fun there. Um, I, we had two of our staff that went and, and were just fascinated by that conversation. So we've got them recording and sharing their perspective right after it happened. And so for those that weren't there, um, if you've heard about it, um, you know what I'm talking about. If not, um, um, as long as uh, the sound doesn't sound too bad, we'll add it to our, our podcast. So you can kind of listen in real time. We'll pre-screen the soundbite. <laughs> but yeah, right. so a very spicy uh, keynote address and, and rebuttal from attendees. So Right, right. I, I mean, Maureen had to get up and pretty much say, um, hey, let's be respectful and everything else. I was like, it's the first time I've seen something like that. So. Protesters um, too. I heard we had we had some uh, you know organized protests uh, inside and outside the the hotel. Yeah, for those that go to the conference, they know that on um, typically the main day, which is Tuesday, right? So it kind of pre-conference workshops Monday. There's some stuff Monday after evening and um, some get-togethers that type of thing. And then Tuesday's really your big full day. So the lunch at Tuesday's that networking lunch. I really like that. We should you know sit on tables and sit next to you know potential clients or clients and just just have fun but and and if you know out out there in San Diego it's warm enough they kind of do it outside and and so there's a sidewalk on the backside and and yeah there were protesters protesting the pharma and NAC kind of yeah. thing um there and and, and I think I, I'm not positive I fully understand which group I always get confused but it's one of the other grantees so I thought that was interesting um I think it's AIDS Alliance but uh okay. 
but they're protesting the fact that, um, yeah, yeah that, uh, that's occurring. So, uh, interesting. I don't think I've ever seen protesters at the conference before, um, while we were eating lunch. So they're marching up and down with signs. And I do feel like that was the wrong audience. It's like, Hey, we're on your side. I, I don't know if we're the ones you actually want to protest against, but we understood their message and I guess I appreciate them, them doing what they can. That's really grassroots stuff that we don't see very often. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just kind of underscores how, how many folks out in the 340B community recognize like this is time to, to be active and, you know, whether it's contacting your, uh, your, your legislature or, you know, protesting like we saw in San Diego or attending these coalition conferences and just having a dialogue with, you know, other folks that are involved in 340B is really, really important right now. Yeah. Hey, before we get off that, it made me think about that, right? We kind of highlighted Representative Bouchon, which I don't think, which, you know, and he's because he's got a position, he's probably going to come up with legislation that was important. But I kind of want to just make sure we highlight that we do have representatives and senators that are very pro 340B, that understand the value of 340B for all covered entity types, and are and I think are going to fight to make sure that whatever bills get introduced, that it's going to be fair and balanced and, and, um, and make sense and right and understanding again that some things like transparency will have to occur but i'd just like to call out again um, one of our bigger proponents for the program that's that i think gets it and that's why not just that she she is pro proponent for 340b but that she understands the value of 340b and can speak to it i think in an intellectual manner and that's uh representative doris matsui out of california she's um not on the health committee but because she's on the the larger committee above the energy and commerce health committee she was allowed to speak um since she's a key person on the committee that the, the health committee basically health energy labor pension oh my gosh i better get i think it's just energy and commerce i think that was a senate committee i don't want to get them mixed up because i don't have them in front of me but but you know, she she brought up the big point, and I want to quote um, what she said. She says there has been a lot of criticisms about the program lately, and I'm and she's talking about 340B, obviously. And I'm concerned about some of the conversation around 340B happening today. So this was at the Tuesday, March 20th meeting that Representative Bushan also spoke. And what she said was 340B is first and foremost a program to provide discounted drugs to low-income patients. But some of the critics of the program seem to forget that 340B has another critical purpose, to help safety net providers provide critical services to underserved patients and to empower them to stay open. And, you know, and when Senator Hatch and Senator Waxman both, right, one Republican, one Democrat, created the program, and when they've when they were before they retired, they'd speak on the program at coalition. They reminded everybody that their intent was to help hospitals stay open. That was one of their concerns is that hospitals were struggling financially and they'd probably get worse. And part of the program's intent is for them to have some savings so they can just simply be there, that patients don't have to travel to the next community and stay open. And, and I, her highlighting that I think was extremely important because that's, people forget, they always wanna say, well, we gotta get patient discounts. And yes, we do, but part of it is to keep hospitals open. So it's not that they have to spend every single dime and, and, and dollar on, on charity care, it's that, you know, do they have other needs as an organization? Are they have a shortfall to even keep the doors open? That is part of the intent. And I, I just want to make sure we added that. And and we talked about reaching out to representatives. If you're a hospital, um, we do want to highlight, Greg, you want to highlight this because you found, you actually identified this, the AHA, the American Hospital Association talking points. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we'll, we can throw a link um, in the show notes for this, but I thought this, you know, AHA put together talking points, um, really kind of countering some of the proposals that the ASAP 340B organization put forth and, and really just kind of 
kind of defending the, you know, hospital side of this debate and explaining why some of the proposed principles really do unfairly target some of the hospital providers. So we'll throw a, a link to AHA's talking points in the show notes, but take a look at that because they really do kind of underscore what you're you're saying, Rob, is that, you know, you know, Congress, when they passed the, uh, the PHS statute back in, you know, 1992, really did you know, intend to preserve flexibility for how 340B savings are used, whether it's to um, provide innovative medical services and um, make uh, increase access to, you know, life-saving medications, but also for safety net providers just to continue to keep the lights on, keep the doors open and remain um, solvent so that they can be there for the, the members of the public in their communities. So we'll certainly hear the, uh, the I guess, rebuttal that AHA has put together around some of the program reform. Yeah, real, real intellectual rebuttal here too. I mean, they, they address the 10 recommendations in order. So they have the 10 um, talking points from uh, American Hospital Association perspective. So I, I, I think mm -hmm. it's, this is, I think this is important, right? I, you know, I, I don't think the recommendations, I mean, the recommendations were put out there. Some of them make sense. And um, I love, love the idea of really just this kind of open dialogue back and forth, whether, you know, not directly, but, but through, through the respective channels of, of sharing their perspectives. Cause I think we have to hear from both sides. I think we have to listen to both sides and understand both sides of the argument uh, that are being made um, to really come up with the best solution long-term. All right. Well, I think we've got some sound bites tuned, tuned up for, for everyone from the coalition. There's going to be one sound bite we're going to put at the end. And, and Rob, this was staff member Kat Erickson. She uh, she attended it was a California specific roundtable, right? Yes. Yep. Just 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 for everyone. Um, we're putting at the end just because not everyone's from California, albeit uh, the most populated state, biggest Medicaid population. But she did attend the California uh, roundtable. Um, she was able to get um, access for that. And she has uh, some good just follow up for our California covered entities, um, all covered entity types on updates from that. I thought she did a really nice update there. So we'll, we'll put that at the end. So if you're not from California or don't have California hospitals or grantees in your um, system, if, if you're a larger health system, then you, you can skip that. Or if you're curious to know what's going on in California, because a lot of times California does things and then other states follow suit. Um, good example is California did for all their retail prescriptions, went to fee for service Medi-Cal RX only. Um, and as of April 1st, New York has done the same thing after a yeah. two year kind of delay. Um, but, um, you know, that that's also in place at New York. So, you know, I'm not sure if any other states are considering the same thing where you no longer have managed Medicaid in, in the retail side, but very impactful for savings. Actually, a big loss, especially to our grantees and and hospitals that are doing contract pharmacy. So, um, you know, I think California sometimes does uh, does some things and, and other states follow suit. So if you're just curious just to see what's going on in California, it might be a good listen. Great. All right, Rob, spring break this week. You got any plans with the family? Yeah, I um, haven't been in forever. My 18-year-old's my kind of uh, going out. Might be our last big family trip. Oh, wow. um, so um, she's finished her year, first year of college. And uh, so we're going to do Disneyland. It's been, uh, gosh, almost probably a decade since we've been to Disneyland. Um, so excited to go for the first time in years. And um, we'll see. Just doing a quick three-day trip there. But uh, that should be fun. What about yourself? Yeah, uh, you know what? We're going to stay at home this week. Uh, big uh, big movie night, I think, coming up for our kids. Super Mario Brothers movie. So my, ah. son's, a big, my son's a big Chris Pratt uh, fan. 
you know, whether it's Star-Lord or Owen Grady from Jurassic Park or uh, Emmett from the Lego movies, kind of been following Chris Pratt, Pratt along his, you know, was he Emmett in the Lego movie? I he didn't was, know that. Yeah, 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 he's the, you know, the the main character from uh, from from Lego. So my, my son's loved everything that Chris Pratt's ever done. So uh, he's he's Super Mario. Uh, so we'll go and hit the movie theaters. Uh, my daughter was saying today, she's like, this will be the first time I've been to the theater since COVID. So uh, okay, she's excited. I gotta ask, and I know for everyone listening, like we just totally went off on a tangent here but i gotta ask um did you let him watch parks and rec because i gotta say that's where he was kind of found and he is hilarious in park in parks and rec <laughs> no i think uh I, I haven't watched a lot of parks and rec but i've watched enough to know that my 11 uh, year old son probably shouldn't be watching it we've let them watch the office inadvertently um <laughs> so you know they i think they've they've picked up some of that kind of mockumentary type humor and, and enjoy that but i haven't let him see any of the parks and rec stuff all right well so. maybe when he's 13 because i'll say chris pratt and that is he is just a riot in parks and rec i um, arguably where, where he started and where he got his chops and, and just blew up from there. But, um, one of my favorite series ever is, is, is that, I mean, for the entire cast, but he does a fantastic job in that thing. All right, Rob, well, enjoy Disneyland. Make sure you, you know, get, uh, a drink from the, the cantina at the star Wars, uh, <laughs> park. You know. that's number one spot rise of the resistance. That's where we're yeah. heading. All right. We will um, we'll catch everybody in a couple of weeks. Have a great uh, spring break for those of you that are going to be off, taking some time off. And again, reach out if you have any questions about 340B. Take care, everyone. Yep. Appreciate everyone. Take care. I'm with Roxy and Kat, who uh, attended the uh, the keynote speaker with uh, Dr. John White, who talked about technology. And so we're going to get a quick update of what was covered. And apparently there's – I stepped out at the end to take a call, and so I missed the fireworks at the end, and, and we're, they're going to cover that as well. So, Kat, let's start with you. Kind of what was the, the takeaways or was the positive things that you heard from that keynote presentation? Um, yeah, so Dr. John White, he's the CMO over at WebMD. Um, he's an internist. And he talked about different kinds of technology that are being used in healthcare, um, as well as talking about healthcare equity and what that means in terms of access. And so one of the, the statistics he talked about was uh, in 2021, 43% of black households were without high-speed internet. Um, and so, you know, it kind does of- Does that seem crazy to you? It does. 40 seems so high. It does. Okay. It seems very high. Um, and so you have all of these, you know, this technology that's really not able to be used or accessed, you know, in these certain locations um, or populous. And, you know, one of the things he brought up was bringing about equity. And, you know, that really is, you know, a partnership between government policy as well as, you know, healthcare providers and making sure that they can provide access. Um, in addition, he talked about, you know, patient uh, centricity and making sure that the patient is at the center of healthcare. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that 340B has brought to healthcare is making sure that patients can, you know, stay on their medications, providing pres prescription, um, drug price coverage, co-payment assistance, those kinds of things, um, particularly in the rural areas, you know, you have your rural health clinics, um, as well as, you know, FQHC clinics and hospitals. Um, and so he really kind of talked about, you know, those kinds of aspects in terms of, you know, how healthcare is changing, you know, with technology in terms of, um, you know, is this going to hurt us? Is this going to help us? And, and like all things, you know, moderation and common sense. And so, you know, if a little bit of Tylenol may help your headache, maybe a lot of Tylenol is too much and can be damaging. So it's a matter of, you know, balancing the different kinds of, you know, healthcare devices or what did he use the term? It was 
nearables. I did see. I did see here that. One. Yeah. yeah. So you have these nearables <laughs> that can quote unquote measure like you know your blood pressure, your temperature, pulse ox, those kinds of things. We kind of saw some of that technology rolled out in COVID with the monitors you would step in front of. It would take your temperature for you. Those kinds of things. Um, but also, you know, part of that technology kind of removes the human aspect of healthcare um, and can make things a little bit less personal. And so I think that, you know, by bringing the discussion back to being patient-centric or patient-specific, you can kind of marry the two together. Patient-driven. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Patient-driven outcomes rather than, you know, feeding the, the quote-unquote healthcare beast that we, that we have here in America. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. You know, how do we how do we collect that data and, and make it usable in the healthcare setting? You know, you wear the aura ring tracking your sleep or your watch or whatever. You know, how does that get into the health record and be available data to use? All right. So, so now cool. the big question of the day. Apparently I missed something that happened at the end. I'm bum, curious. Bum, bum. <laughs> Very dramatic. Wow, you got dramatic sounds. <laughs> we we have dramatic in. sounds. All okay. right. Setting the stage, goes up to the microphone and he, he's you know, speaking to, to Dr. White and says, you know, I got a statement. I don't think you're going to like it. That was the opening line. And then he says, George Orwell warned us about this in his book, 1984, about kind of the takeover of tech and it being our downfall, um, kind of piggybacking on the back of healthcare because, you know, something we all need and something that's really good, you know, and just kind of launches into this full-blown attack on, you know, these wearables and these nearables and saying that, people are going to be pressured into participating or maybe they're not going to get the health care that they need you know everybody in the audience is starting to look around like who is this guy what's he talking about and okay and after that you know maureen kind of regroups and she's just like okay you know everybody please be respectful and you know moved on from that dr white didn't didn't get to counter or anything well, he didn't get to respond he did not get to respond probably for the best Thank you, ladies. Appreciate the update. And uh, we'll catch Kat later because she's got another contract pharmacy, I think. No, uh, California. California Roundtable. Round California's got a lot of hot stuff there. Yeah, the Medi-Cal RX as well as self-auditing. Mm. The self-auditing information. Yep. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the state of California is up to. All right. So we'll check in, check back in with Kat later. Thank you, ladies. Okay, let's, let's start over, Sabrina. <laughs> Tell us what you heard during the um, uh, Commander Egwim's uh, opening conference talk. Yeah, so he mentioned in 2023 they were going to do 200 additional HRSA audits. And so I'm just wondering if I heard wrong, if they're going to do 400 or if they're still going to stick to their 200 annual HRSA audits a year. Right. And and I think Riley and I were talking and we, we think he just meant 200 in 2022 and an additional 200 in 2023. But Rachel... So I heard what Sabrina heard, and he said additional, which means 200 plus 200 to me. So definitely need some clarification on that, because that's a lot of... All right, so come on, I can just scare the crap out of everybody, because we're not sure if it's 200 or 400 in 2023. And we know we've been seeing a lot of other auditors auditing. We've seen, you know, Tracy Appleby Cole from HRSA Auditing outside of Bazelle. We, we've seen, um, on the audit I did last week... Uh, I think uh, we, we saw a training auditor on site. So we're definitely seeing more auditors. So, yeah. So, I mean, there, there might be something to that, but we'll try and get clarification. And, and I guess if you actually hear this on the podcast, that means it's probably true. <laughs> so we'll go with that. Well, thank you. Anything else you want to add? Anything else from the opening conference? Uh, I mean, it's just a lot of information. So I'm sure that we'll hear more throughout the conference today. Absolutely.
Rachel? Just looking forward to all those sessions that we're going to be going to, getting more info. Excellent. Hopefully we'll catch up with you later. Thank you. And I am here with Chelsea Reeve, who, of course, is manning our booth and, and all things um, uh, customer-facing, does an awesome job. And um, you wanted to share something that you've uh, heard today. Yes. Hey, everybody. So excited to just share with you how awesome I think all of you are. First of all, I've been talking to a lot of clients that went to the 340B University, and they have been coming to our booth because they sat by a bunch of you that just really talked us up. So we just wanted to send a shout out and say thank you so much. We love our clients. We love doing this work, and we do it for you, and we just appreciate all the love that we get from you guys all the time. So thank you so much. And I know this will air after the conference, but hopefully many of you get to make it to, or made it to our client appreciation event, and we really put that on because we do appreciate you and, and uh, that we get to work with you and your 340B programs to make it as good as it can be and take care of it so you can continue to take care of your patients. So I echo Chelsea's comments. Thank you uh, for recommending us and uh, letting us be part of your program. Hi everyone, we're back with Kat, who just attended the California Roundtable and has some updates for us. Kat, how was the session and what did you learn? The session was really good. Uh, we had a representative from the California Primary Care Association and a representative from the California Hospital Association. Uh, one of the things that the California Primary Care Association was able to talk about was the advocacy efforts that were very successful in obtaining $105 million uh, to CHCs and FQHC organizations that were affected by the state transitioning to a Medi-Cal RX fee-for-service model for all retail pharmacy claims. Um, and we were, they were actually able to advocate using a survey, using numbers. They were able to pull their members together to tell their story. And the state, you know, provided $105 million. And those monies have actually started to be released. Um, even, even as the state is seeing a $23 million deficit that they're trying to make up, they are still releasing those funds. Um, so that was a very good story, um, success story, and how you, how powerful uh, lobbying and advocacy really is in the 340B space. Um, no, I, I remember talking to some of our FQHC clients. I thought it was in the 60 range when they first looked. So they actually got that number up mm -hmm. once they were able to collect real data on what that impact to Medi-Cal RX and losing did. those MCO plans they are. They did. And so the state, when the when the California Primary Care Association first um, integrate or worked with, started working with the state and talking with them about the numbers that they were seeing, the state asked them to do another survey, which they did, and they provided that data, and they were able to increase the final number to $105 million. That's fantastic. Yeah. Good for them. Them. Good for them. Because I knew that was a big hit, losing that MCO Medi-Cal, MCO Medicaid. Um, so they, we converted 15.5 million lives transitioned from the managed care model to the fee-for-service um, Medi-Cal RX model for retail pharmacy prescriptions. And then we also talked about additional things that we're seeing that's going to enter into the marketplace. It may not necessarily affect 340B, but it'll likely affect your 340B covered entities. And so because the you know COVID is kind of dwindling, the emergency um, waivers that were in effect are ending in terms of the state. And so um, one thing the state is requesting that all county Medicaid agencies do is to reaffirm or re-up the Medi-Cal um, payer requirements. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some 
some patient populations may be affected. They're anticipating two to three million lives being pulled out of being covered by Medi-Cal because of this. So that's big. They're going to start in July of 2023. It's going to go through June of 2024. So you may see you know more patients leaning on your 340B drug discount programs, mm-hmm. cash programs to try to keep patients that are falling out of Medi-Cal um, to be able to stay on their medications. That's a big number. It is. Scary. Okay. Yeah. So more more need to keep some of those savings in place, especially with yeah. the contract pharmacy restrictions. I know that FQHCs rely on contract pharmacy savings and some of these manufacturer impacts. If they continue to impact FQHCs, it's it's going to get it's going to get tough to take care of those patients. Yeah, absolutely. And then lastly, so kind of going with our our lobbying and advocacy information is. California does have a bill um, on the floor. It's Senate Bill 786, and it is a bill to prohibit PBMs from discriminating against 340B-covered entities and contract pharmacies. And so, you know, we've got 22 other states that have moved forward with this kind of legislation. And so I think California, you know, if we can advocate and try to get this, this kind of uh, past. We are one of the largest, you know, I'm surprised populous. they haven't finished one yet. I it's California. Too. There was one, they yeah. said there was one last year, but it fell through. Okay. It didn't make it. So, you know, again, that advocacy, tell your story, call your Congress members, you know, be engaged with the California Primary Care Association and the California Hospital Association. The California Hospital Association has over 170 hospitals. They meet monthly and mm. they gather everybody around so that you can talk about the different struggles that you're seeing and specific to 340B as well. And they provide, you know, very good feedback and information to the state, particularly when we were transitioning through Magellan and and the Mm -hmm. fee-for-service model. So right now we're in phase three of of this transition, and that means that we're going to start seeing more TARS and SARS being required. So you're going to have more of an administrative burden at the retail pharmacy side. Um, So currently it's going to be up to just adults for new medications. So now they're going to start implementing you know, the kind of the old school TARS and SARS, you know, prior authorizations that were required mm-hmm. prior to the transition. And then also as well as um, CPEDS and, and children's drugs uh, be part of that. So your retail pharmacies are gonna, gonna be a little bit burdened down by some of that administrative work that's gonna be required. Oh my gosh, and you layer on Inflation Reduction Act requirements yeah. for modifiers, um, it's it, MFP when that comes out. Yes. I, I am concerned about retail pharmacy and contract pharmacy, how mm-hmm. they're going to operate with all these requirements. Um, that and not have. being reimbursed for any of that labor. So right. they're being reimbursed for the drug. Or reimbursed less because of the MFP right. at some yes. day. Yeah. So they're not, they're, they're not taking into consideration the labor when they think about those dispense fees and calculating those. So we're seeing that they did. One interesting caveat was they did bring up the Walgreens contract oh, information. Yes. Um, so the state, uh, Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom, um, he did pull the CDCR contract, which is the California Department of Corrections with Walgreens. That's corrections specifically. Yes. And so it's a $60 million contract. Hmm. And uh, uh, from the information that we gathered was they are also looking at the Medi-Cal contract. However, Walgreens has not violated any aspects of the Medi-Cal contract, so it is still in place and effectuated. So just prisons? That's Just the prisons, okay. yeah. But it's still a $60 million hit. It's still a pretty big hit yeah. um, to the Walgreens organization regarding um, the move that Gavin Newsom um, made earlier this year. That's a good clarification. I thought it was all a Walgreens for, for Medicaid. I, I did as well. So, I think that's why they brought it up because everybody was kind of wondering. Like that's a big deal. Where are these Medicaid pay? It's just, it's really 24 hour pharmacies are. How are they going to do that? So yeah. prison system makes sense. They probably have yeah. alternatives. They can go with CVS or whoever. I don't know. Right. 
Yeah, okay. or use like internal pharmacies. Their own pharmacies, yeah, which actually probably save money, but probably, probably. Maybe Walgreens so. is pretty efficient. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so you know, not much is necessarily happening in California in terms of changing any kind of 340B policy. We're still applying our UD modifiers for clinic-administered drug. You still need to apply the actual acquisition cost, um, and then our retail pharmacies. We're still seeing you know the 08 modifier that's required, or, or the 20 modifier um, that's required to indicate that you're. You know, using 340B drug, and there is a carbon requirement. So, not much has changed, but you know, I would always say, you know, work with your state, go to your state at legislature days. They have 340B legislature days. Like, you know, take the time because, as you can see, you know, the California Primary Care Association was able to finagle 105 million dollars, even during a really hard. Uh, that's a pretty time nice, financially. That's serious, nice work, Primary Care Association of California. Indeed, indeed. Well, Kat, thank you. You're that was welcome. a wonderful and thorough update. Thank you for attending that session and sharing with the with the podcast. Absolutely, anytime. Okay. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.